Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. In this episode, I talk to neurodivergent relationship coach, the exceptional Kanan Techchandani. We unpack navigating the world by assimilating the behaviour of others in order to blend in, the notion of belonging and acceptance, and how we can all benefit from pivoting our perspective. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Um, Kanan, is it Aspies? Is that right? Aspies, yeah. So Aspies. Um, those people who identify with Asperger's. Ah, right. Okay, thank you. And um, being twice exceptional herself, she intuitively understands her clients. She specialises in working with highly sensitive and highly intelligent adults who are professionally successful, but struggling to experience connection and happiness in their most important relationships, especially the one with themselves. Uh, Kanan uses a trauma-informed mind-body-spirit approach tailored to the individual. She is a certified strategic intervention coach, yoga and mindfulness meditation teacher, professional organizer and declutterer, and a Rahani healer. Her mission is to empower neurodiverse adults and families to live a life of happiness, fulfillment and success. Brilliant. Wow. Thank you. First of all, just let me thank you, Kanan, for coming um, onto the show. It has been a long time coming and I'm really glad that you're here. Um, so welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to speak to you today. Brilliant. Okay. Um, now we have spoken before, um, and in our conversations, we could talk for hours. Your your experience, your life story, and um, what you do. There's it's so rich, and there's so much information there. I'd like us to start at um, the beginning, and really just to ask you. Um, how did you perceive yourself growing up? I always saw myself as the odd one out, different and a bit awkward, really. Didn't didn't get how to be in the world, just did my best. Um, well, you know, I always felt different, whether it's because I was Asian or because I wasn't particularly drawn to socialising naturally. Um you know, I liked things that were different to other people. Like um, I used to be into the occult and reading about that at a young age. So just everything felt a bit different to what everyone else was doing. And and your upbringing, was that, did, was that different? Did you feel? Yeah, totally. So um, uh, I grew up above a Chinese takeaway when I was young and my dad passed away when I was eight. So we, you know, in that situation, we had to move in with family. Um, me and my brother and my mum, we lived in a one one bedroom, one living room, essentially, which was our bedroom, uh, for a period of time till, you know, my mum could get herself on her feet. Um, she eventually got a house nearby. But yeah, for a period of time, that was life, living above a Chinese takeaway, having different... Um, sort of sleeping schedules, eating schedules. So at the weekend, we'd sort of eat at one in the morning, stay up till three, 
you know, wake up very late the next day, sort of late afternoon at the weekend, but then have to go back to a, a sort of standard school time during the week. So it was always a bit different. Yes. Wow. Wow. I, I can really uh, relate to that because I also um, used to, as a child, my bedtimes were crazy all over the place. Um, and that was mainly due to, you know, my mother uh, and her sort of sleeping, uh, her sleep times and also being quite relaxed about, you know, bedtime. But so I completely can understand where you're coming from on that one. And 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 do you think those things. Do you think those things affected how you felt that you were perceived by others? How do you because well because I felt in myself that I was different and I would be kind of constantly conscious about what what's everyone else thinking about me you know always really conscious of that self-conscious so that's why I always wanted to kind of not be too visible you know, not have attention on me, didn't really like birthday parties, that sort of thing. We didn't do birthday parties, basically, when we were little. Um, didn't like it when people in a group, you know, if we were talking and then someone, if someone asked me a question, oh, it was awful when everyone turned to look at me, you know. So <laughs> it's just, yeah, there's, oh, sorry, I've lost my, my train of thought now. What was your original question? No, but it was, it, no, but it's fascinating though, because it's how you were how you were perceived by others how do yes, you feel yeah. how you were perceived by others how did you think that they were perceiving you i think they just saw me as quite shy um quite intelligent um kind but quiet really you know quite um introverted yeah um and that attracted certain people to me i guess you know the kind um more relaxed nice people so I was very lucky in that sense Mm. I I attracted the people I needed um I think a lot of people took me under their wings you know Um, yeah because of the way I was very I guess I was very nervous a lot of the time yeah yeah and as you grew up did you did that sense of feeling of nervousness uh grow did that did that increase? Did did these feelings that you know you had when you were a child? Did they just get bigger and bigger and bigger? Did you feel more separate from other people? I think there's there's almost um, two experiences. It it was like as I got more comfortable with certain stages, like you know going through junior school, mm. making finding my feet then feeling comfortable but then having that transition to secondary school that was you know really scary and then you're having to find your feet again so I think during those transition phases um the anxiety was really intense and you know so I've talked about in the past um about hiding in school toilets right so it was those intense moments that made me need to do something like that to just hide away and protect myself whereas once I got more comfortable over time um, I think that was more when I was able to mask and blend to fit in because I had watched what everyone else was doing. I kind of figured out what I was supposed to be doing and then I could do it. So it took a bit of time to master, but eventually, usually I could do it. Um, 
but it was you know obviously it's quite exhausting to be always on and analyzing and kind of performing um so yeah. even even when you get to you know adulthood it almost steps into another level as you get older because you know you've then got office politics and yeah. how do i how do i show that uh, you know i'm performing and how do I get a promotion? And it was much. It became much more complex. There was more dynamics involved. So it was just a constant, almost like pushing my um, abilities at each level of change. And I, I feel like I managed it quite well. But looking back, obviously there were sacrifices. Um, I did get more anxious as I got older. I slept less found it harder to go to sleep I think I was just thinking a lot about everything you know analyzing ruminating questioning um well wow it must have been so exhausting just that constant you say being constantly switched on and alert on on alert searching for clues to then carry and go ah right I behave in this way this is yeah. this is how I do this, and this is how I should do that, and and it's almost your perception of the world is perceiving others and their perception. Yes, exactly. It's like, okay, what are they thinking and expecting, and how do I give them that so that I'm accepted and I don't kind of get um, pulled out sh- and yeah. shown that I am even more different than I already feel. So trying to minimise that sense of being out an outsider. Uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of us neurodivergents do that really well because we, we want it, we need it, you know, we need to feel that sense of belonging. Um, so one of the things I always, one of the phrases that I, that I always think is, um, I was never really lonely, but I felt alone mm. because there wasn't really anyone that deeply understood me. Yeah. So there's a sense of alone, aloneness, but not kind of, not, I was always surrounded by people, you know, um, and yet even that being alone could be quite a pleasant thing because it meant I, I didn't have to be on. Yeah. I didn't have to be thinking about other people. I could just go into my own world. And, you know, when I was talking about growing up as um, someone who was with a single parent, right, it meant that my mum wasn't around as much as maybe you know two parent families, and it meant that I had a lot of alone time. Yeah, which actually was a godsend. Back then, I probably didn't think of it like that because I'd see people's parents being around and you know taking them to I don't know taking them to like even parents' evening, and at that point I was comparing myself to other people. But now I look back and I realise that was actually a real gift because I needed that downtime to just be alone with myself, just to let uh, my nervous system calm down, uh, just to be and not do anything. And so those sorts of times is when I could do what I liked, which was I'd listen to music or I'd be drawing or painting, reading. So they were wonderful. It was actually a really wonderful childhood when I think back to it, what I had available in terms of my home environment. Uh, Sorry, that was just so great. (laughs) I'm I'm a bit like, I'm just processing. I'm processing everything that you've said. I'm like, uh, wow, I was so caught up in what you were talking about. Because I think that's it, isn't it? Childhood is so important in 
forming who we are or who we think we are. Yeah. Because in in childhood, we're told who we are. Yeah. Or we're told how we should be. And having that extra layer, you, you also mentioned twice exceptional. Now, that's not a term that I've heard before. What does no, twice quite, exceptional... Quite niche. Yeah. So twice exceptional is when someone is gifted or, you know, what you could consider highly intelligent or highly creative artist. You know, I, I you're, you're clearly gifted in the arts, you know. Um, Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, so that's one exceptionality, right? But then when you combine that with a, um, maybe like a learning disability or a, a difficulty socialising, that means you've got two exceptionalities. So that's why it's called twice exceptional. You can also get multi-exceptional where you might be like ADHD, autistic, uh, dyslexic, but really intelligent as well. So it's it's quite complex. Right? Wow. No, that is complex. Thank you for just thank you for just clarifying that because I because I've heard obviously of neurodiverse um, uh, and everything to do around uh, autism. But the twice exceptional term, I I wasn't really very familiar with, and I'm really glad you you um, explained that. Thank you. Mm. So, um, so what was it then that, with all of this experience that you'd had as a child, and then going into adulthood, and feeling as though you needed to be. Uh, on alert almost the whole time in terms of processing what was going on around you, what then prompted you, what what prompted you to begin investigating how you were functioning in the world and um and and to start a journey of self-discovery? What was it that that made you kind of do something about mm. the the path that you were on? Yeah, so there's two distinct points that I can uh, identify. First was when I was working um, in in my role as a buyer in Debenhams, right? And it was really stressful, <laughs> you know. It was um, very, it felt very fast paced because obviously trying to make money, um, the turnover of um, what you're delivering into stores, you have to make sure it comes in on time. So it was all very, uh, felt very fast paced and. Mm pressurized and I would and it's quite competitive you know lots of people want to be in the fashion industry so you have to put a hell of a lot of effort into it and, and be good at what you do and it got to the point where you know I, I'm quite uh, competitive quietly competitive right yeah so I really I set a goal when when I started on my work journey I said I just want to become a buyer and then I'll be happy so it took me a while to get there, but I, I worked really hard to get there. But during that time, I definitely like got really stressed out. Yeah, I think part of it was commuting into London, that hectic lifestyle, traveling, uh, and you know, I, I, sometimes I'd come home quite late at night and just be really tearful, getting home at like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, kind of questioning what am I doing? But I, I want, I need to do this right because I, I was so driven, and because of that stress. Um, somehow, I don't know if I sort it out or it, it kind of came to me, but there was uh, yoga on offer nearby where I worked. So I, I went to the yoga class. Uh, I think it was actually put on by Debenhams, maybe. Um, 
and it was it was run by this lovely Indian guy. He's quite young. Uh, didn't know anything about yoga back then, but that really, really made a massive difference to how I felt. Um, it just helped me feel calmer again, like I yeah. could cope. So I was I started doing that, and then for whatever reason, I kind of it, it stopped. And when I got pregnant, I left Debenhams, and I didn't ever go back. And that's the journey of becoming a parent. Yeah. Now that journey was massive, huge, so much to learn. Again, very, um, very anxiety causing because, you you know, you don't get shown how to do this sort of thing. And you mm. just have so many fears because you're going to get this life given to you that you're, well, you're baking this life and then you know it's going to come and you need to take mm -hmm. care of it. So, 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 so anxious about, you know, doing a good job and taking good care of it. Um, so when... When I became a full-time parent and I decided not to work, I wanted to focus on doing the best for my children and being there all the time because I guess when I was younger, because I only had my mum around part of the time, I felt like I wanted to give my children the opposite almost. I wanted to be there as much as I could, right? And it became really stressful being a parent because um, my son was not really sleeping very well. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, broken sleep. And I know that most parents probably go through that, but there was, it to me at that time, it felt like this is beyond the level of what other parents are going through. So that was the first time I was like, something's a bit different here. Mm. But, but I probably thought, oh, it's just me. I don't know how to cope yet. He also had lots of problems with uh, his skin. So he had like really bad eczema. At that point, I didn't know what eczema was either. So I just yeah. found out about so many things uh, that when we were um, weaning him, he had loads of allergies, he, he would pro projectile vomit to certain things. And so I just felt like I had to learn so many things from scratch. And I just felt so worried about my little baby, you know. Yeah. Um, so I had, I guess what you call hypervigilance at that stage. Yeah. So I went on, I carried on like this for a long time, just trying to figure things out on my own, Googling, um, you know, reading, joining parenting groups. So just really doing as much as I could on my own. And that got really stressful. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night often, even when he could sleep through. Um, and somehow I managed to find yoga again locally where I lived. And that was the next turnaround, right? The yoga gave me that sense of calm and control back again. Just give me a, a few, uh, like an hour's peace when I went. But it was difficult to make myself find that time because mm. I was more concerned about taking care of other people at that stage. Um, so those were the two times that, two pivotal moments where I realised, ah, oh, it's gone too far one way, right? And I need to think about coming back to myself and giving myself that that sense of calm and peace so that I can just cope with what I've got to deal with. So when I found yoga, I kept going to yoga, but at that point it's more of a physical practice to feel calm. But that then led to um, the, the mindfulness uh, meditation courses that I uh, attended. And it also led to me seeking out training in yoga mindfulness for my kids to help them with creating a calm household. So yeah. th those were the two you know, key moments. And then there's, there's so much I could tell you about the rest. Mm.
Mm. We will, we in another episode, we'll <laughs> yes. talk about that. But um, so yoga really was pivotal in you beginning to find a little, a little slither of light, a little slither yeah. of calm, a little yeah. uh, connection. <laughs> yeah, connection. But it's about it's about going inwards, isn't it? Yoga. Exactly. It's about going inwards. It's about finding peace in yourself. Yeah. And, and at that point, it was really about getting out of my head and yeah. all the worries and just getting back into my body for a bit. Yeah. That's what it gave me. And I really needed. Yeah. And so what was it then that then prompted you when you'd after you'd started the yoga and you found this little bit of peace? What then prompted you to go into into self-development and into coaching what was the thing that's okay you in that direction I you know I believe in serendipity and the universe helping you out and giving you what you need at the right moment so at some point I'd done my kids yoga mindfulness training and the intention was let's go and share this with other kids when I'd started, it was, it was just meant to be from our family, about my two kids. But then it was so powerful. I could see it was so life-changing. I felt I had to go and share it, even though I'm not someone who likes to put myself out there. I, don't, I didn't want to work with kids. I didn't see myself as a teacher, but it was so important. I felt like it wasn't my choice. Yeah. So there was that. And then at that point, I'd also done uh, my Marie Kondo and journey of decluttering my house and because I joined um, APTO, the Association of Professional Declutterers, and I wanted to basically find my second career, uh, which I didn't know what it was going to be. I knew I didn't want to go back into buying, um, but I was trying to figure out, well, what's it going to be? And that that moment when I was like, okay, I need to try and get these businesses going as a self-employed person, which I'd never done before someone said to me oh my friend's looking for some coaching guinea pigs would you like to meet her and so I had coaching for the first time in my life and oh my gosh it was completely life-changing and I was just gobsmacked at the power of what one person in one hour could do and I was like this is got to know more about this yeah you say what what one person in one hour can do but it's two people really it's it's yes. you and the coach yes. so the coach is the person that is really just helping you unlock yeah those those like a guide. Parts. Yeah, yeah like a guide I mean I think yeah I'm I'm all for for coaching you know as we both trained yeah uh in coaching as coaches but uh yeah it's that it's that combination isn't it yeah, the partnership. Yeah. And it's about finding the right partner. The right partner, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, obviously at that stage, I didn't, I didn't even know what coaching really was. I couldn't describe it to anyone, but I just knew, wow, this is amazing. And I need to follow my gut, my instinct, uh, the natural curiosity and passion that was pulling me towards it. And that's when um, I basically met you, right? We went, yeah. well, I went, that was my first ever kind of coaching, live training experience. Yeah. I think it was like a three or four day event, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It was just eye-opening and I, I couldn't I couldn't not follow my heart and my instinct. Um, yeah. So I did lots of, I did lots of training and 
you know, this whole journey of like, what, where am I meant to be? Who am I meant to be serving? I, I still wasn't clear. And that's why I kept on doing, you know, the trainings, whether it's yoga, whether it was um, to do with coaching, just constantly wanting to learn and figure out where is my place right now? What is my second phase of um, being of service in this life? I think that's a really important thing, though, isn't it? It's it's trying different things yeah. and also not being hard on yourself and kind of saying if one thing doesn't pan out how you've planned it, that, oh, that's it. I'm a failure. It's the end, you know, which I think people have this give themselves ultimatums. Well, I have mm. to do this by this yeah. time or I or else. Yes, I have. I haven't succeeded. And actually it's a journey and it's understanding. You might go down a path that isn't particularly, you know, that doesn't lead you to where you want to go, but then you just turn back and you go on, you find another path and exactly. then you'll make, you'll make your way to the main road again. You'll make your way to the, the central path again. Yeah. And, and when you do, there are no obstacles on that path. You know, you you have momentum, you're moving forward and you know that you're on the right path because it feels right. Yeah. And I think that's that's a really important thing to to uh, to hold on to or to realise when we're, you know, because I do find I do find this this whole uh, obsession with doing one thing and sticking to it. Mm. Uh and and the 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 way we judge ourselves, I just find it it's so unhealthy. It's really limiting. Yeah. There's, sorry, there's lots of thoughts that are coming to my head as we're talking about this, like the the term multi potentialite, where there's so many things that we can we have the potential to be great at. Yeah, yeah, you know? and are um, and are exactly, and we we can go down all those paths, and it's fine, right? Um, and then there's also the the fact that many neurodivergence have very high standards have um, a sense of perfectionism a need for perfectionism and even myself I recognize that and how that would be very limiting because I had kind of like black and white thinking I'd be like well if I can't do this like really well I'm not going to even bother doing it oh god limiting myself you know so what I had to do to pivot that was just to learn to play with things and be okay that it's just part of the journey of um experiencing it and what i might have considered failing just as a learning experience exactly and that i just keep doing it i keep it's it's not failing it's just getting that feedback you know and and you just keep going it's never a waste it's all useful it's again it's it's how you interpret those labels isn't it it's yeah. how you evolve interpret those labels how you perceive those labels yes. and then respond to those labels uh and and take those labels away because yeah it, what you said is it, it's just so true you can't just when you said oh if i can't do it perfectly i'm not going to do it at all i kind of went oh that was me though right that's it was just, me that's how I lived that's how that's I lived. how I lived yeah yeah right. <laughs> yeah I'm there I'm, it, I understand it worked for a bit you know to to satisfy what we needed but I think when you expand your awareness of what's possible mm. then what you're willing to try it becomes bigger as well 
You just but, see it differently, right? But also, don't you think that there is fear involved in if I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to bother? Yes. Because if I can't do it perfectly, that means, again, these labels that I'll fail. Yes. Yeah. And if I fail, then that's the end. You know, yeah. what does that good. mean? I'm, I'm not, not very good. good. I'm what not good enough. Story? Yeah. What story am I attaching to that? Then how will then that feed into how I operate in the world? Yeah. Yeah. And with that, I was just thinking about your some of your clients and how they operate in the world, because there's a combination of physical and psychological factors Um determine how we view ourselves you know so how we view ourselves in the world is is very individual yeah really it's about how your clients and what you and and how you work with your clients because you know there are common traits with neurodiverse people in terms of interpreting and how you told us earlier how you interpret get your cues from other people Mm. so obviously how you interpret people's body language and these micro responses i'm interested in finding out how that impacts on the relationships that you are trying to help so can you give us an insight into some of the issues that your clients may come in uh, come to you with for assistance regarding mm-hmm their relationships regarding interpreting behavior regarding um, or or rather their partners come to you uh, with do you because you deal with the neurodiverse people and their families don't you yeah so yeah yeah, whether it's kids with their kids and parents uh, couples um, you know adults and their past parent their parents that um, you know maybe of the older generation so it's any of these relationships, really, and and as I, you know, as I said, it's the relationship with themselves essentially. Um, so it's more complex than um, it may seem at first, mm. because mm. obviously these labels have just put us into little boxes. Yeah. But ultimately, every person is so unique, and so I could tell you about one person who is. Uh, well, okay, they're all generally highly sensitive. Highly sensitive yeah. as in, you know, maybe it's the the sense of touch, the sense of smell, you know, the visual stimulation they have. Um, that, in, that also includes their brain, right? Their brain is so sensitive to the data that comes in that it may be processing it much quicker and in different ways to other people, which is why you get that out-of-the-box out thinking. But you can also have... Um, kind of the opposite as you kind of mentioned where maybe they don't pick up on certain things mm. small things that may seem obvious to most people and I guess a lot of people think about you know maybe autistic people don't recognize emotions so you know I'm autistic but I feel like I do recognize emotions and actually it's the opposite for me I feel like I can sense it and see it in in very micro ways more for me it's more about I can sense it Mm. I can feel the energy of it. Um, yes, some may not be able to see it and not recognise it. I I have clients that have said that they don't understand. They can't can't understand, can't see what the problem is, and they need their partner to actually be really direct and say, you know, for example, you need to stop talking now. I can't I can't listen anymore. I need a break. So 
there's a it's, there's a vast spectrum of how mm. someone would experience other people's emotions, uh, but I would say that most of the time we are highly emotional because you know emotional regulation is a problem that we often have. Yeah, and that's something that no one gets taught as a child or at school, and that's why I think that is one of the most important things that I help my um, clients with is to understand how are they creating their emotions what's going on in the mind the body you know the, the stories they're telling themselves yeah. what they're focusing on but also what's going getting them to think about well what's going on for your partner or your child and helping them to put themselves in that person's shoes so they can so they can empathize yeah because sometimes it's so big and hard to understand to just grasp they need someone to help break the concept down so it's more manageable to understand and, and integrate so yeah sometimes it's about okay you might be too sensitive and I need to help you um maybe like reduce the external stimuli that's coming in so that then you can be able to focus on your partner's needs and yeah what their emotions telling you other times it's about well can, okay what what do you understand your partner's trying to communicate to you um with their body language for example maybe they what they're saying doesn't tie up with their body language and trying to get them to interpret that a little better so it's trying to help them create this bridge because they may be so far apart mm. but i always know that the love is there that I, that yeah. that's the one thing right the love is always there but they feel like they've been struggling so hard that they've given up because they've they've maybe tried things on their own they've tried counseling you know like relationship counseling and they've still not sorted things out so it's almost like there's something missing and it's just because the gap is so wide sometimes i just need to help them to meet a little bit closer to the middle and then they can apply maybe some of the things that they do in relationship counseling some th some of the things that i you know do with my coaching that i've been trained to do there's a there's a wider gap that needs bridging. Mm, mm. And what would you and what advice would you give to anyone out there who's struggling, who is who knows that something that they that something isn't I don't want to say isn't right because there is no right or wrong really. There's mm. just difference. Mm. So how would what what advice would you give to someone who is just struggling, who has a feeling of dis-ease mm. I would say um that firstly this is really normal especially if you are neurodivergent and especially because of the world that we're living in which is really full-on mm. and, and if you're sensitive you're going to feel it much worse than other people so that firstly it's okay it's normal but then to you know go on this trust their instinct to be curious and go and start researching what mm. it might be and they may need to um cast a wider net to begin with that's what I did you know I was like what what is this I have no idea what is going on and where to begin mm. but just by beginning that's how I narrowed it down to I thought it was you know thought it was ADHD actually it turned out to be autism uh, and then within that I, I found out about Asperger's which is no longer used really anymore in the UK mm. but it it helped me to funnel down to what is it that I'm experiencing and why? Because there are people who are going through the same thing, so you're not alone. 
And so I would encourage people to definitely use Google. Um, yeah. Google it. Google yeah. it. There's online, t- if you think it's, uh, you know, neurodiversity, if you're highly sensitive, you feel different, go and do some of the online tests. You know, there's some on my resources page. They can just just try to identify certain traits that they resonate within themselves so they can just see themselves, you know, without judgment. There's also loads of groups out there, you know, on Facebook and in person. Get yourself in the group because you don't need some kind of diagnosis. Mm. You just get in the group and you start hearing stories that you'll be like, oh, this is what I'm going through or what, what's happening with me and my child or I, this is what I see in my child, my partner. And you'll start feeling like it starts to make a bit more sense that you're not just imagining this thing and that no one else gets it. Because often around us, people don't believe us. And so we don't mm. want to even verbalise it or discuss it. But what I want to say is it's it's safe there are places of safety where you can explore and discuss this. So initially on your own, but there are groups that you can go to. And, you know, if someone is really that concerned about, if, you know, I, I don't particularly like going to groups. Um, but, you know, you can you can work one to one with people. I, like, I, I have an initial meeting with people just to mm-hmm. help them figure out, is it possibly X, Y, Z? And I can I can signpost them if they're not ready to do some deeper work. But. There's, there's people out there ready to educate and help you feel a sense of belonging. There's loads of people on YouTube and on the social um, social media platforms where if you just start listening and identifying yourself with others, that's that is really helpful, I think. Whereas before, most people probably thought, you know, around mental health issues, need to go to the GP, need to go and see a psychologist oh, or a psychiatrist. Yeah. Before you even go there, there's a, there's a lot you can do for yourself, mm-hmm. right, to prevent getting to that stage. And that's that's what my hope is that things don't get so bad where you have to go down that avenue straight away. Mm. And how can people contact you? Um, so they can find me on my website, which is uh, aspicoach.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn uh, as Kanan Techendani. Um, I am on some of the other social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not very active on there. So really, uh, if they if they want to keep in conversation and learn more, they can um, go to my website and they can join my email list and I'll, I'll keep sending out information on you know, giftedness, ADHD, autism, that sort of thing. Fantastic. Fantastic. And also I'll include... Um, links to your website and to uh, all your socials uh, in the show notes which would be fantastic Um, and I I'd really like it's been so it's always wonderful speaking to you but it's been really incredible talking to you today because there's so much information and I think your story will impact other people who have been listening um, and the advice that you've given, and what I'd like I'd like to know actually to end with is, um, what is one of the most important things that you've learnt on your journey so far? So many, but the thing that comes to me instinctively, intuitively right now is learn to love yourself first, because other people can't love you more than that. So the first journey has to be with yourself. Yeah, yeah, wow, woo, lady. <laughs> it's true, it's true though, it's true. It's 
you know, whatever the question is, the answer really is love. Always. It's yeah. always comes down to that because that's the most powerful emotion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I love you. Thank I you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so, so much for being my guest. You have been absolutely incredible. I've, I have loved talking to you today. And, oh. um, yeah, and I hope that uh, the listeners, the listener, <laughs> no, the listeners, <laughs> I hope that listeners have enjoyed the show and thank you for listening. And um, please like and subscribe and share, um, rate and review. Uh, and, um, yeah, please let me know what you'd like to hear about, what you'd like more of in terms of perception and uh, looking at life through a different lens. So uh, on that note, I'm going to say uh, a final thank you and goodbye to Canaan and um, see you next time. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time.